Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I'm one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of One Indie Games, and I design tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. Um, yeah, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I also design uh, role-playing games. And we have a guest here today, as usual. Hey, Ed, Edward, Ed. Ed, yeah. Ed. Ed, Eddie, and Ed, 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 Ed. Hi, <laughs> Ed. Tell us, tell us, tell everybody who you are. <laughs> I've yeah, never hi, seen I'm, Craig have such a brain fart for a second. Like yeah, I've never seen that. Ed, and I'm the owner and developer of Scabbard RPG, campaign manager. So we have like I don't know tens of thousands of users on Scabbard um, who maintain their campaigns there. It's rules neutral and it's pretty cool. It has like a bunch of cool features that um, none of the other none of the other guys have. Uh, thanks for coming back. We're really happy to have you again. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, and Craig, we have a fun topic that I like to talk about today for our GMing topic. Do you want to introduce it? <laughs> I don't. I don't have a sound cue ready to go. Um, but imagine a train. Going by uh, the chugga 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 chugga, and then now imagine in your in your imaginations because we're all RPG players here and we all have imaginations. Um, imagine a whistle going off, and we're going to talk about railroading or how to avoid it, or you know perhaps um, when a, a little light rail is kind of okay. Because <laughs> um, I've had that conversation with people too, that there's um, there's certain levels of railroading that's kind of okay. But to, to make a quick, com uh, quick note for people who may not be familiar with the term or to kind of put it all in context for us, railroading, when we refer to railroading, we're talking about the idea of a GM running a game where um, you basically take all the characters, you put them on a train from point A to point B, and you're just going to kind of hit all the stops along the way. And there's not a lot of player agency. It's just kind of the, the, the GM taking them to this place. It's often maligned as being kind of, uh, you know, taking away player agency and being forceful um, with the story. And um, the argument sometimes then expands to like, well, you know, as a GM, if you wanted to just write the story, you should just write the story. But if you're playing a role-playing game with players who are going to have their characters make choices, um, then don't try to dictate too much of the story. So how can we avoid role, uh, railroading as a GM? And when is it, a, you know, kind of okay to do a little bit of that? Yeah, I, I think of the railroading like being on a, you're playing a JRPG, you are on the path, you go, you're at the city, you go fight some stuff, you go to the next point, there's a cutscene, the cutscene tells you what happens, you don't get to make any dialogue choices, etc. Uh I, I think that you you nailed, you hit the nail on the head. Wow, you, I was gonna say you nailed the nail. Not the, not the phrase I wanted. Uh, we're, we're all just <laughs> turning phrases and we having are. trouble with words. Yeah, that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, when you talked about player agency, cause that is, you know, that's really how I feel. I don't like when I feel that no matter what I do as a character, things are going to turn out one way that the GM has already planned out in advance. Like you're just pulling, you're being pulled along on a string. Um, and I think the, the number one way to avoid doing that is to, as the GM, let go, let go of your plans, let go of your 
need to control the story. You have to, you have to share and sharing can be hard. And I know that's like a big, it's a big thing to ask. We, we kindergartners take a whole couple years just to learn this concept, but you have to really let go <laughs> and kill your darlings in your plot because you have to let the players kill them instead. Yeah, I guess um, sort of my perspective is like, I think it's helpful to understand why GMs have the motivation to railroad. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because like in order for there to be fun, there has to be a certain amount of detail. And making up that detail takes sometimes considerable time on the part of the GM. And so what they might do is like, okay, well, here's my adventure. And they're gonna go through point A, point B, point C, point D. And then they detail those points along the way. Mm -hmm. And so when the players say, well, I'm gonna go this other way that the GM hasn't made up, then, then there's this temptation to railroad them back to what they made up because that's what they made up. And mm -hmm. it's not always easy to ad lib. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually am not good at ad libbing. I, I need time to think, but you know, I, I did write this article several years ago. Uh, it's on my website, scabbard.com. And it's called just in time world building. And the idea there is that what you do is you just sort of like detail the world around where the characters happen to be in between sessions and, and to know what to detail. So you give them like this overall goal or you let them pick this overall goal. And then you sort of listen to where they plan on going next. And then you detail that. Or if they choose or if they're talking about two different possibilities and you're not which, sure which one they take, you sort of provide detail around those like maybe you'll make up if you know they're going to go through to a certain town and you haven't made it up you sort of start detailing it in between sessions and then when they get there you just kind of ad lib when they're there but it's easier because you've provided details maybe you know who the shop owners are maybe you've made up some plot hooks maybe you've made up some uh, rumors things like that i think too you can do a little bit of predicting like with what the players might be might decide to do and you can if you're not everyone is great at ad living like you said not everyone's great at improv or they do need the extra time which can stall your entire game but if you think okay they're gonna they're gonna go one of i'm i'm building this plot hook um it's all over I think I can reasonably predict they're going to go investigate this cave and there's a dragon in this cave. Now they have a couple options when they get there. They can kill the dragon. They can talk to it. They can run away. The dragon can kill them. Uh, whatever, like you can, you can predict reasonable expectations of what can happen next. What you shouldn't do is like, well, I need them to kill the dragon. They, the, the dragon has to die. Otherwise, this can't happen that I have planned in the future and this can't happen. Don't don't do that. Don't don't plan future events based on 
a decision that a player might not make or that the players as a whole might not make because that will, that's the surefire way to crumble all of your expectations. But I love the idea of, you know, you're, you're, you're listening to your players, like you said, Ed, and you're, you're detailing out the things that they are currently, the area that they're currently at, and then slowly clearing the fog of war as they travel. I think that's great for like those exploration type campaigns, which I particularly adore. To speak to the concerns that Ed brought up and the, the, that, you know, many GMs have being not fully prepared or confident to improvise in the moment. Like if you predict seven different possible ways to go and then they pick the eighth that you didn't plan for, you're still kind of stuck and have to deal with what that is. But there's a lot of different things you can do. You can take some of the item, so some of the elements from one of the predictions that you had kind of planned for a little bit and just kind of take them in over into that one or take bits and pieces of a couple of different elements uh, that you had planned for, different possible pathways that you had planned for and bring them over. The players will never know Mm -hmm. that you just like picked up the bad guy and put him over at this other place or you have like, you know, you you want there to be a trap to, you know, or some sort of obstacle for them to get over some sort of great success that they get to, you know, have the hooray moment at the end. You can put that, you know, take that out of a different place. You had it, put put it over there. And anything that you abandon, um, anything that you end up not going down the road can just be saved for later. You can find ways to recycle that. Um, and once something that I, I remind people of, and I have to remind myself of all the time too, when I improvise, um, just reminding improvising GMs is the players are on your side. They want you to succeed at improvising, they're going to cut you some slack if if they if they come up with um, kind of a weird, especially if it's a really weird option or something that's kind of out there, and you look legitimately surprised when they say, "Well, we go do this," and you're like, "Oh, you know," and and it's and there's it's okay with asking for a minute to to plan to consider that, take a break, plan for it, you know, like you mm-hmm. can. Players will take a minute to you know check their phones or grab a snack or whatever. And so like all these different, there's a lot of, a lot of little different tricks that you can kind of mix and match as you go to, to, to deal with like suddenly having to improvise over um, a choice that you had never thought of. And here's the thing, it's going to happen. If you GM GM more than a few sessions, at some point, the players are going to do something that completely surprises you. Sometimes it's going to be an option that's so outlandish that you couldn't ever have possibly thought of it. And sometimes it's going to be an option that is so obvious that you're kicking yourself that you didn't think of it because it's like, oh, well, clearly, obviously that's where they would go. That's the, it's, everything that I've set up makes perfect sense that they would go that direction. And you just goofed and didn't think of that option. And that's okay. You can, you can plan for that. And B, this, this goes to mindset. Cause I, I like how Ed brought up the idea of just having, you know, having the right mindset or thinking mm-hmm. about like what it might be. How do you prepare yourself for the situation is to be okay with surprises. Um, that goes a long way to handling unexpected choices um, and helping you to get away from, from pushing the players down a particular path um, is just be okay with, with the idea that there's going to be surprises. You're, you're trying to surprise them. Let them surprise you every so often too, and be, and just find, you know, you know, make your peace with that. <laughs> um, just mentally come into it that way. Yeah. I, I try to make a, I, I give my players a lot of agency or at least I hope that's what I do when I was playing the most recent D and D campaign, which I started like three years ago, we have not finished because we don't play very regularly, but I was like, Oh, I'm just going to make a very basic 
the players leave their hometown, they go and they save a princess. They're going to do these things along the way somehow. Even when I start off like that, they end up taking it to some wild places. Literally from point A to their first pit stop, I had a little encounter for them and they almost died. So I had to throw some stuff in there so they wouldn't die in the first encounter that I gave them. Um, and those characters that I introduced end up, ended up becoming important NPCs. They, when they went to go fight a dragon, instead they hatched a business deal to fund their army. It was a lot. Um, I was out of all the things that I had expected them to do when encountered with, uh, an ancient red dragon. Um, it was not strike up a business deal and be successful in doing so. <laughs> um, but they did, they did. Uh, and I let it happen because that's what they found to be the, the right choice for, for them. And I didn't have to deal with the consequences right away. You can, you can hold on to the consequences and you can say, okay, well, <clears throat> Uh, he says, I'm going to, I'll send you back my contract later. You don't have to do it right now. You don't have to resolve it right now. You can kind of send them off on their way and then come back to that point later, which is what I had to do. I had no idea what that was going to look like. And uh, it ended up being really fun because once I had a couple minutes to think, I was able to continue on with the story. They didn't have to go right away to the next thing. They can goof around and go on a little side quest in the meantime. Yeah, I guess, like, um, I remember being on this, like, anti-railroading uh, crusade and just saying, okay, well, what's the complete opposite? And the complete opposite, I think, is a sandbox. Do you guys agree with that? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The opposite yeah, of a railroad. So- at, its, at, its base, at its most base level, yeah. Just like, here's a world. I'm, I plan for nothing. You decide what you're going to do, and I'll just dis, you know, deal so with that I- as you go. And so I had this town, and I and I think I was borrowing elements from like City of Freeport, which is like meant to be dropped into an existing campaign. It was a brand new group of players, and I just dropped them like in the center of town, and I said, "What do you, what do, you do?" And they just stood there; they, they had no idea. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, there's. You, you kind of, I, I actually think both extremes can have disadvantages, right? And and you have to know your players. Like, if your players are just standing there and have no idea what to do, then something has to, like, the example I like to give is, like, you know, a little kid runs up to the party and asks to see the bottom of the shoe of the wizard. and then. They show him the shoe and he runs away. And then when they look at the shoe, there's like this red W on the bottom of the shoe, <laughs> on the yeah. bottom of the wizard's shoe, right? And then and then it just starts opening all these questions, right? Like, was is it really is it really is that what it's is that paint? Is the is red that, ant? Is, is, that, is, that, <laughs> is that paint? Or or is that or is that blood? And how did it get there? And who was this kid? And are we sure Maybe it's it W? Are we sure? Yeah, I was going to say, is it a W or is it an M? Is it, is it an M and does the M stand for murder? Is it a good right? W or a bad W? And, and so you just sort of like just, you know, pull them in, right? Uh, they could choose to ignore it, but who's going to ignore like a flat seed like that, right? <laughs> um, and I think that you just sort of draw them into like, 
you're not really telling them what to do, but you're just like giving them this plot seed that they. <laughs> yeah. That's hard, hard to just ignore. You're giving them a question to answer and you're not telling them how to find the answer. And that initial question, what the heck is this? can spiral into a million other questions and exactly. yeah i i like that and i might steal that exact plot, that exact <laughs> plot hook in the future that sounds really fun i'm thinking of all sorts of uh <laughs> fun things you could do with yeah, that you could take it anywhere right and the cool thing is as a gm you don't even have to have it all made up in advance because it's, it's just like you can adjust what it actually is you just need to make sure you write write it down Mm -hmm. what what you've decided as you decide it but you don't you don't have to have you could just throw it in there as is without even knowing yourself what it means mm -hmm. and then just sort of see where they go and maybe they'll throw out 10 10 ideas as they discuss with each other and, and you're like yeah that one sounds good i think that'll be the, the truth so you kind of like use your players to give you ideas right so you you can't ever tell them that you that's what you're doing that or destroys. the players might kind of tell you which one they want to be true mm -hmm. like they start discussing the option they throw out five six different possibilities of what it might be but then they get more in depth with one of them well now clearly they're more intrigued by that option so maybe that's the one you go ahead and go with and while they're having this discussion and figuring out what to do you are in your head this is like you know, getting kind of back to like, they, they made a choice to go to this town. You weren't expecting them to go to this town that has nothing to do with it. You threw this hook in there. Like, how can I use this hook now to tie back in? And they've picked this thing, this picked one thing in particular that they're really interested in and they're talking away and they're talking away. And while you're kind of just half paying attention to that, you can be figuring out how, well, how can I tie this into what the story, you know, what the, what the, the different elements of the story that I had kind of planned for and, and use that to, um, provide them with a clue or to get them to meet an NPC or to do something that is kind of part of the overall story that, you know, helps them to progress whatever that plot line is. Yeah. And you can bring in your other plot hooks that way too, that you wanted to get to like, oh, I really wanted them to go to this creepy old church. So maybe the first person that they show this shoe to set, suggests that they go ask the priest there, or now maybe I really wanted them to, to meet this person. And this can be the first person they encounter when they go into the tavern and be like, has anyone seen what the heck is up with this? Or, um, no, I'm, I need you to clean out my basement before I tell you anything. Haha. -ha. Like, there's all <laughs> sorts of stuff you can do um, to, to get them to maybe a thing that you wanted to do that you thought was going to be fun for them. And then you weren't really sure how to get them there. And they will, once they have that mystery, what, what's the deal with the, the W on the shoe? they are they're gonna they're gonna get hooked. oh yeah they're gonna they're gonna go right in for it i like that a lot i like and, that and a lot. Thing, you know you, you brought up mystery and, and i i actually one of my emails and my dm tips that i send out to my my uh email list is like it talks about mystery and, but it first introduces like you know it talks about you know harry potter right which everybody thinks is like fantasy right? well it's not it's a mystery it's a mystery all every single one of the novels is a mystery right and i think that's a big part of why it's successful and when i run my campaigns they're all mysteries and 
if you really want to draw them into the story and not just be like, okay, you open the door, here's an orc, kill the orc, does it have treasure? Right? If you want to get away from that and draw them into your world, like, like where, where your world actually matters. You know, a lot of GMs spend a lot of time building their world and they, they would love their players to care. Right. And I think mystery is what you can tie in the mysteries with the elements of your world that you made up. And now they care and, and, and they want to know more. And you just sort of dribble it to them, right? Like an IV. Yeah. I, I think that calling it a mystery is a uh, also kind of plays into one of the fears that GMs have when they are like letting go and taking the rails off is that they're worried that something that they ad lib is going to cause a big plot hole later, but you will be very pleasantly surprised how many plot holes players won't even realize are holes and how much patching you're doing along the way. Uh, and they will make up excuses for you. They're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Why? Why doesn't it make sense? What's going on with that? What does that have to do with the weird W? They will They will patch those holes for you. It's a, like, you don't need to, to know in the same way, like, like if you're writing a mystery novel, you need to know and make sure there are no plot holes that ruin your mystery later, because that's the expectation of that genre. But the players are going to be so actively involved in creating the story with you. They won't really, if they do notice something, they'll, they'll either make an up, up an excuse for you, or it's not really going to break your game. It's, it'll be fine. You can, you'll be able to come up with something. And, and it's okay if, if neither you nor they ever know why there mm -hmm. were orcs in the basement um, underneath yeah. your house, right? Like, why were there, my kids asked, like they were, they were, they found out that their grandfather used to be like this high level rogue, you know, leader of the thieves guild. And he had this secret like um, basement lair right in the city beneath their townhouse. And they connected to their neighbors um, or their relatives, and and it was like there was an orc down there were orcs down there, and they're like, why would there be orcs down here? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> How would you find out? How would you find out? Right? Um, mm -hmm. I would never like tell them. They had to go figure it out, and sometimes they never did figure it out, and neither did I. <laughs> to this day, I don't know why there were orcs in the basement. But if they had pursued it, you know, there would have been a reason. Yeah, and it's fine. Just like in real life, sometimes you never solve all of your mysteries. I don't know where my sock went after I did laundry. <laughs> I will never know. <laughs> your sock is on a grand adventure. Yes, with with all of my uh, loop holders for crochet, all of, my, <laughs> all of my stitch markers. Something I'd like to, to bring up, too, is that the idea that, like, a bit of railroading or knowledge of what's definitely going to be coming is okay because um, if, if the players are okay with it, because some sometimes the players are good with like, well, we know we're going to get to point, you know, J along the line, going to go from A to J, but we don't necessarily know what's going to happen with all the, uh, all the points in between. And, you know, I, I find myself often comparing this to like the outcome of, of some movies. Like there's, there are movies that you kind of know how this thing's going to end. We've all seen Endgame, Avengers Endgame, or if we have any interest in seeing it, we all knew that all the dusted characters were going to come back. We all knew that Thanos was going to be defeated. 
This is a superhero story. There, it's going to happen. Characters get resurrected all the time. The bad guy gets defeated. But we didn't know that it was going to be a time travel story. And we didn't know that five years was going to pass and Tony was going to have a kid that he didn't want to lose. And we didn't know that Cap was going to pick up the hammer. Mm-hmm. And even if we suspected it, we didn't know how it was going to happen. So there's, you know, even if you know that, like, even if the players go in knowing that we're, we're kind of, we, we have to get to this place. We know we have to get to this place one way or the other, but we don't know how to get there or we don't know. We have to prepare ourselves before we get there or we have to go in there with knowledge or tools that we don't have. Like having a knowledge, you know, having the foreknowledge of some of these things, the end point or even one or two of the points along the way is not bad railroading. It's like a little light railroading. It's just like a little bit of just getting them on board. You can almost argue it's not railroading at all, right? Mm-hmm. The railroad is a track, right, from point A to point B. It's not point B itself, right? Right. Like you're, and and to be honest, the players might figure out a way of solving their goal without going to point B. Right, and that's the uh, difference between RPGs and movies. Uh, movies, you know, have a dictated outcome, but you know, even along the way, you knew that, like something. Even if you heard, I'll say, I'll put it this way too. Like, let's say you heard spoiler. Like if you, if you hear spoilers about some important plot element in the middle of the movie, it doesn't stop people from, you know, generally from going to see the movie. They still know we're going to get to point A and, and, and D and J, but they want to know how we get to those points. So Mm -hmm. even if the players know like, well, like if you, if you've set up the, the sage as having this important bit of information and they need to get to this sage and they need to get that information from the sage, like if they don't, everything comes to a screeching halt and players can reasonably assume that that would suck and that would kill the, the storyline. So one way or the other, they know they're getting to that point before they get to whatever the end is. It's just a question of how they get there. And so there's, there, and there can be a lot of different choices and a lot of different scenery along that ride. I, I think it's it's very good though to say to because I think people do get in their head they worry about whether or not they're railroading their players, but saying that it's not the point B is not the railroad, I think was was spot on there. Because we do like when you're when you're when you're attaining a plot hook and you're adventuring it, you know you you know kind of like what that destination is gonna be like. I know my players know they're going to go save the princess. That's the whole that's the whole goal. They're at least going to get to that point, but they've, they've taken a, a very roundabout way of doing that. And sometimes when I have a plot point that I know I need to, it needs to happen and it doesn't, I have in the past introduced a time loop story just off the cuff, like, oh, well, <laughs> and then time restarts. Let's figure that out. And then they, they start over. I, I love doing I that. Done I've that. done that a few times. Yeah. <laughs> and now you, and now you repeat some of these events with some foreknowledge. Yeah. That will help you avoid cataclysmic outcomes. That's, and that, that's, that's a fun, that's a fun one too, where again, there's a little bit of railroading. That's a hard one to do though. Not, <laughs> you, it's can't, not, you can't take that. You can't do that trick so many times. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you don't want to play the foreknowledge thing too often, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like the GM has to make up something and the players have to do something. And unlike the real world, which is already made up, even if no one can see it, you have to make something up. Or unless you can, unless you're really good at improv, which like I, I actually like I mentioned in, about that article is like you're still doing improv, but 
you know, you make up all these details about where they're going and then you improv based on that. I think mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to improv when there's some anchors, right? Like I used to tell these stories to my kids at bedtime, but I would make each one of them say a word, okay? Like any word. And the word had to be in my story that I made up for them, right? And it's actually easier to make up the story when there's some kind of like restrictions or anchors. Mm -hmm. Like, like if, you know, if I just made up some completely different, I, I wouldn't know what to do. But if they say, you know, they'll say the word sticky is in the word in, in well, the story. Right. Or, or trash can, right? There has to be a trash can in the story. Now it's easier to make up the story, actually. Yeah. You get a lot of, like, I used to teach, and I mean, I'm still certified to teach literature, English writing and literature. And my students always came up with the most creative writing and poetry when I did give them a limitation. And I think the same, it's exactly the same for players. Like you mentioned too, with the sandbox, if you just drop your players in a sandbox and say, okay, go. What do you do? do, you do? <laughs> They're not gonna do anything. They need the, they need a little bit of guide rails. Um, it's, it just helps you figure things out. Even in, in video games that are sandboxes, there are still parameters and, and guidelines. Yeah, there are doors that look like scenery and doors that look like doors. Mm -hmm. Exactly, <laughs> Scooby Doo style too. Yeah, and those, uh, <laughs> yeah, those doors, those doors lead to something. The other doors that look like scenery—that's just for you to enjoy the fact that you're in a room with a bunch of doors. Well, what what about a a change of pace? Why don't we get on a different track here and start talking about <laughs> our game design tip tips plural for today? Craig, what what's our game design topic? Steal from every game. <laughs> Steal from other games. Steal liberally from other games. And from everything else. Um, and from everything else. But, you know, there, there is sometimes a tendency with, with some designers, with some people who are thinking about, like, I'm, I'm putting this thing together and I want to have this thing that's really something about the game that's really unique and that's been never been done before and that's going to be. Um, and, and maybe you will find that thing. You'll, you might find it purposefully. You might find it by accident. But, you know, when it comes to game mechanics and, and you know, world building elements and things like that as well. But, you know, in particular with game mechanics. Like the, I, I made a comment to somebody a while back and I don't know exactly what the number is, but I could say that I could argue perhaps there's 20 truly unique game mechanic concepts in all of RPG dumb that's been around for 50 years, a lot of, because a lot of things are iterations of other things. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Like there's, you're probably not going to change the world with anything in your game design. You're not going to change the, the landscape of game design, but you can, you might find a really unique and interesting twist to something that's been done before. And so uh, we can, let's, let's just go down that road and talk about um, what we've stolen from game other game designs or what we s intend to steal someday or, you know, like ways that you can steal from other game designs to help you get over a hurdle with your own design. And that can, and it can be in mechanics or in, in story kind of stuff too. Like when you get down to it, a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of fantasy games, right? It's the most popular genre, just a broadly speaking, fantasy, medieval style fantasy. But there's a lot of like, okay, well, this is D&D, &D, but it's really gritty and dark. And it, we call it, you know, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Demon Lord. What's the beginning of the title? <laughs> I don't, I don't 
Rob I don't Schultz. know. Rob Schultz's <laughs> game. I'm blanking because uh, I'm old. But yeah, like, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's a ton, there's a, there's a ton of fantasy games that in some of them are fairly straight fantasy, but a lot of them even deal like, you know, they, they, they borrow liberally, steal liberally from um, world building aspects, you know, like there's elves everywhere, for example. Um, and many of them across game, game to game are very similar, but then there's ones that are kind of twist and very different. Yeah, I think even yeah. saying like elves like that, like when you said medieval fantasy, we don't really do medieval fantasy. We do Shadow Tolkien. of the Demon Lord. Oh, right. <laughs> we do. We do Tolkien-esque fantasy and Tolkien didn't make up these stories whole cloth. He was nope. a scholar of Icelandic and Norse. Uh, he was like a linguistic scholar of these old languages and was borrowing very heavily from a lot of these older uh, traditions and mythologies. He didn't make up everything either it's you make it's people stealing all the way down <laughs> it's thieves all the way down yeah yeah i mean i used to make up like uh board games with my brother um I, i've only made up one rpg and uh, i think it's important i mean i'm not i'm not like you guys you guys have made a bunch of games but the, the one i made was called easy d20 and it, i think that it's important to say okay well why am I making a new game instead of using an existing game? And I think there has to be something that's, even if it's not a mechanic, right? It has to be something about it that's, you know, unique, right? Uh, or else why not use some other game? Mm -hmm. um, like there's a game, I've never played this game, but there's a game called Kids on Bikes, right? And there's a lot of movies, E.T., I think, I don't know if E.T. started the whole, thing with kids on bikes you know et there's goonies there's been a the movie, yeah. the movie the movie the movie yeah and, yeah. and uh, even like uh uh stranger things right there's a lot of scenes with kids riding around on bikes and they're doing the kinds of things that you know that that they did in the team right um going on adventures these, together finding all these mysteries actually like we yeah. talked about <laughs> mysteries before and so when i made up easy to 20 like my my motivation was like, I tried to introduce my kids to role-playing games when they were very young. My oldest was six and my middle daughter, my youngest hadn't even been born yet. My middle daughter was four. And I was like, okay, they're old enough. <laughs> um, but the rules were of D&D were very complicated at the time. 5e hadn't come out yet. And uh, three and a half was extremely crunchy. So I said, okay, I'm going to make a, an easier version of, of that. And I found micro D20, and I guess I didn't, I thought it was maybe a little too simple. So I sort of modified that. And and I didn't choose like hero system or anything, because I, I think a lot, a, a big, in my opinion, a big, one of the best things about D&D over any other fantasy game I've seen is they had a very rich set of spells, right? Like a huge array of spells and different kinds of spells. And like the hero system is like, okay, well, you, you can make your own spell, but it's mostly like, okay, this is D6 damage, 2D6 damage. And then and then you just put a little flavor on it. Like it looks like a light or it looks like a... And, and I didn't really like that. I, I like the rich variety of spells in D&D. So I sort of borrowed from micro d20 which also 
takes from that spell list. And then I just reduced it down to a much smaller spell list. And, you know, my kids could wrap their minds around that because they were so young and the rules were so much easier. So I think, you know, like it's important to have like what's different about this theme, right? What, what is different about it? And, but yeah, steal. Yeah. I, it's this, it's this game, but it's this mechanic, exactly. but right. You're adding, exactly. you're adding a little twist to it. And I think that's always really important. I've made hacks of games before. Um, and I mean, me, Moonpunk is a powered by the apocalypse game. It is heavily powered by the apocalypse with their playbooks and their mechanics and their failing forward. But we added our own versions of the stats. We added our own twists on rules. And even our setting. Our setting is from a Robert Heinlein novel, but different. We we borrowed so, so much. Um, and even within the design of the game, I borrowed a lot from, like, gosh, in my bookmarks tab on Twitter right now, every time I see some cool layout design, I bookmark it and save it so I can steal an idea from it later. Because if I, fi- if I see something I like, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can take that and use that as a baseline to, to create what I want. So when I was looking at stuff from Moonpunk, I was looking at a lot of zines and old punk scenes from the 90s and 80s and stole designs from there. And it just, it made it feel, number one, it made it feel more authentic. And number two, allowed me to focus on the things that made my game unique instead. And um, it's, it's just, when you're trying to invent something, you come along with the same problem that like, if you put your, if you put your players in a sandbox, they freeze. The same thing happens if you're trying to invent something completely new on a blank piece of paper. What are you even going to do with that? You have all of this pressure on you to be revolutionary. I don't know. Like, I get the idea and I get the appeal of wanting to be wanting to invent something that other people look at and then want to borrow from. But even if you look at the things that you admire, you will see the the amount of borrowing that is done, stealing straight up that is done from even your favorite games that you think are so, so, so new and innovative. Uh, I Humans have been around for too long for anything to be really, truly new. Well, like they say, there's only seven stories that have ever been told. And every story is just a different um, weaving in of, you know, just substituting any it's kind of like what craig was saying there's really only 20 mechanics there's like there's like there's the exploding dice there's the the advantage and disadvantage you could probably just enumerate them and and i kind of feel like a new mechanic probably shouldn't be the only thing that sets a game apart yeah there should be i think there should be some kind of thematic um difference as well maybe I've personally never bought to play like as a personal game. I've never bought a book because I heard that it had a really cool, innovative mechanic. I I usually buy things to play because I like the setting and I like the themes and I like the art because I judge books by their cover a lot. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I've 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 purchased books because I've heard they have a really cool mechanic, and I do that for the purposes of stealing and getting ideas. Yeah, even. same here. You know, uh, if you look at Capers Noir, which is a it's a, a supplement for Capers, 
um, capers uses playing cards, um, kind of a press your luck mechanic. And noir, um, capers noir is is intended to be kind of a crime noir setting. So there's a lot of investigation that takes place. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the uh, bugaboos about um, investigation is if you make some sort of investigation check and you fail and you don't get any sort of clue, then everything comes to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gumshoe and some other games out there have come up with the way to deal with that is like, even if you fail your check, you get a clue. Um, if you succeed on your check, you get a better clue or more clues or detail on the clue. If you get like the, whatever the check, you know, whatever the good version of the check is, the critical success or whatever, if you get that, then you get even more. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it rewards players for having high roles and good checks. It rewards, for, uh, rewards them for finding ways to gain bonuses to get there, um, rewards them for building investigative characters. And Capers Noir does that straight up. I mean, like the the investigation check rules in there are basically just the card flipping version of Gumshoe, um, where you get a clue no matter what, and then you can get better information with successes and boons and all that sort of thing. I didn't try to reinvent anything there. Um, on Capers Covert, I tried to reinvent um, the <laughs> how to deal with a chase, and I had my playtester say, this is terrible. <laughs> and I, I borrowed from another game for, on a, for a twist on D20. I've talked about this before um, on the podcast, and, and it just it was too different and, and, and too weird and like didn't jive with the, the rest of the mechanics. It didn't seem like it was part of the mechanics. So I had ended up going back to something that was more akin, you know, more appropriate to the card flipping mechanic that I had already established as the, the core mechanic. Um, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, imagining games. Um, Pete Petrusha designed um, a game called Rest in Pieces, uses a Jenga tower similar to dread and he specifically wanted to build on the idea of how the dread jenga tower mechanic functions and so he he basically took that mechanic and it's it's that mechanic is in rest in pieces and for the if you're wondering the game is about like you're all deadbeat roommates and one of your roommates is the grim reaper literally and you want to get him out of the place and he won't go but uh like he added layers to that jenga tower mechanic you can still see all of like it clearly has you know the the underpinnings of dread um but it's twisted and tweaked a little bit with some additional optional not optional but options that are in the mechanics that do things a little differently that got what he wanted to do for his game but it you know i mean basically any game that has the the jenga tower mechanic is borrowing liberally stealing liberally from dread because that was one of my 20 you know, game mechanics that is completely and utterly unique and kind of changed the landscape in some way. And then there's nothing wrong. The whole point here is there's nothing wrong with doing any of that. You can you can take these other mechanics, tweak them a little bit to fit your thematic thing, as Ed was saying, trying to hit the hit the theme of what your game is doing. And you don't even you, know, you can you can acknowledge it in the credits like, you know, some people use it as a selling point powered by the apocalypse forged in the dark. Those are all selling points. People mm-hmm. like people love that mechanic set. And so when people make games that are based off of that, um, they they promote it as being powered by the apocalypse or forged in the dark because they they know there's a player base that's going to be like, ooh, what's this? But you know, even if you don't say that, people will pick up on it, and and nobody's going to fault you for it. Like, who's going to look at a 
a game that uses the Jenga tower thing. And like, um, if it's a well done game, they're going to look at it and say, oh, this just steals the dread mechanic. And that's a lazy response to that because maybe it does, but then it, you know, iterates it in some other direction. And that's, yeah, that's, 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 what, that's what game design does all the time. We, we constantly iterate into new things from things that existed before. Yeah, that's why it's important if, if, if you're going to take a new spin on something that you, you can't just assume they're going to figure it out. You have, you have to tell them, just like with any product, you have to list your benefits. Right? Yeah. But, you know, you it's, oh, as, an, like, as a note, as a side note, adjacent to what I just said, it's that's a sell, that's a, that's a way to teach the game. Mm-hmm. Saying it in the rules that this game, you know, uses a mechanic that is based on this other game by so and so and so and so or whatever. And that will help the people who know that other game understand your game. It's actually a, it makes for a shortcut in game uh, uh, rules description. I was going to mention, because you, you mentioned the mechanic of like, uh, you failed, but you still get a clue, right? It's, right. I actually had these dice made. <laughs> They're six-sided dice that are meant, I call it the scabbard improv die. And like, it has, it'll, the sides are like, yes, and, yes, but, <laughs> yes, no, and, no, but, and just no. And so that way, like, I mean, I didn't really, it doesn't fit with any game, but there's 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 a lot of games that have that type of mechanic. I think some of the Star Wars uh, games have that, they have special dice. And it's like, you failed to break, you, you succeeded to break in to the warehouse, but you alerted the stormtroopers, right? Um, so it was like a success, but it's like a partial success. Mm-hmm. So, I, I I like that mechanic a lot. Uh, this this boolean like yes or no <laughs> yeah. doesn't doesn't quite capture what happens like in the real world, and I don't think it's that, that's fun. Yeah, but even yes and no, but that's borrowed from Second City Improv. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I literally talk about those exact words in some of my games in the like how to play the game section mm-hmm. well if you want have a gym if you guys want i can send you um one of the dice i have i, I kind of want to design a game yeah. where that's the dice. yeah me too now yeah <laughs> okay. well if there's, I'll, I'll send you one do you each want one or yeah i'll take one just send me, <laughs> sure just if you want one. just email me email me your uh your addresses and i'll, I'll send you each one. <laughs> okay so I was, I was thinking about like what would be the most apt metaphor for designing games when it comes to like innovating and stealing designs because that's really what we're talking about is innovating you're pulling pieces apart and sticking them back together in different ways and on one hand the the ttrpg industry is very similar to like book publishing in general in that there are trends in the book publishing industry things that get popular um, and remain popular um, and it can come in cycles, like for a while, vampire, werewolf, teen romances were super popular. Dystopian, Hunger Games style teen novels were really popular for a while. And these things come in cycles. Uh, and I think the same thing happens for the TTRPG industry, where we have these cycles of what people like and what they're looking for and, and trends, because... People are building off of the popular things um, and the things that they've liked in gaming 
and things that have become trendy, <clears throat> not using that in a negative sense, but you know, like what people are into right now. And in the book publishing industry, one of the ways that you promote your book and you promote your pitches is you say something like, this is like Hunger Games meets Ender's Game, or this is um, Jay, this is Jane Austen meets Fight Club. It, you, you're, you're selling your pitch based on a comparison of already known and popular things because it makes people more interested and gives them an idea right now of what you're talking about. So in one way, the TTRPG industry is kind of like that, like when it comes to the story side at the very least. But I think better, a better comparison is fashion when it comes to mechanics. You can't, you, when you're designing for fashion, like you have certain parameters. If you're just, if you have pants, they, there need to be two legs for your legs. There needs to be a hole for your head. There needs to be like, you have parameters for that. And you can't just go out and design something completely wild and expect people to want to wear it either. Maybe you can work up to that, but imagine like I, I'm taking Gen Z fashion and I'm showcasing <laughs> this to Queen Victoria. I'm going to be thrown in jail. You can't, you can't just completely out of the blue do something that, yeah, maybe is super creative, but it is not going to work right now. People are maybe not ready for it. Maybe that sucks, but I, if I designed a game where it was throwing bones into a fire and examining the cracks in the bones, I don't think that that's going to sell anything, even if it sounds really cool, uh, which is something I stole from uh, uh, <laughs> older traditions too. So you have to like to take these older designs and I, you have to design them to fit the body and to fit the style and to innovate in smaller ways um, to, to make it work and to make it useful for people. Because at the end of the day, if it's not useful and it's not what people want, it doesn't matter how cool and innovative your design is. So I don't know. I feel like even fashion comes in cycles too, but. Well, I, I find myself thinking about like, you see the, the fashion shows where like the, the top tier, like hugely famous designers have these, have this fashion show and the, the models come out on the runway and they're wearing something that no one is ever going to wear in public ever, 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 ever. It's, right. it's an art piece that they are showing off their design skills to showcase themselves as an artist. And you can do that in game design. You could do something really wild and out there and people will go, wow, that's like amazing, but it's unplayable. Just mm -hmm. like that fashion is kind of unwearable in a day-to-day -day kind of regular person realm anything other than the met gala yeah um, or really that cool that this mechanic has you cut down yeah. a tree and count the rings but. <laughs> yeah this this cool this mechanic is really interesting and it's an innovative thing to do but i just don't see it being played mm -hmm. um, um by many people it's you know it's it's a thought experiment more than it is a playable game but there might be the the bones of something interesting that does fit what people kind of expect from the games that you can kind of carve off a piece of that really wild idea. So like, you know, think of wild ideas. Like I, I find myself in my head right now, Ed thinking about like, how could I make a game with that die that like literally has no numbers on it. And it just has the, uh, uh, you know, yes, yes. And yes, but kind of stuff in there. And I find myself thinking, well, do it like zombie dice was where you have a bunch of different dice, but they're all different and they have different, you know, like each one's a different color and each different color has different, 
results and some colors skew toward yeses and some colors skew toward noes. And so you have skills that are rated by colors. Right. So if you roll, if you have a good skill, it's a green color and the green skill has more yeses on the dice. Yeah. But then it also has the yes, yes, but yes. And like, would people actually buy those dice and that game, you know, and buy those dice just to play that game uh, from like a little tiny game designer? Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. I mean, that's why I was, that's why I was thinking, you know, But it's, it's an interesting concept. I don't think it can just be the mechanic. It, it has yeah. to be, I think it has to be more than just a mechanic, although, you know, cool mechanics are cool, um, obviously. Yeah. You'd have to take that thematic, that we, that really fun thematic die type idea and find the the game idea that it marries with well. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which might be tough. Like maybe you need, maybe it needs to be about improv, uh, you know, imp, imp, uh, improvisers, imp, you know, improvisation, com improvisational comedians, improv people, like they're saving the world or something. And that's how <laughs> they do it with everything is yes and no, but anyway. My my wheels are spinning. The design game, the, you know, the game designer wheels are spinning. And so, thank you for that. I'm going to be thinking about that all day. <laughs> well, Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm I'm very excited to see what Craig comes up with for this guy. <laughs> uh, Custom dice. <laughs> where where can we learn more about you and see your stuff? Yeah, so um, I have a, a a website. It's called scabbard.com. Uh, it's one B. S T A B A R D dot com. And I think I have a special link from last time that's scabber.com slash nerdburger. So I can send you the link. I can't remember whether it's capitalized or not. Yeah, please um, do. And I'll, I'll send you that. Oh, and I'll send the link to that, that, um, article that I mentioned, the just in time, uh, yeah. Well, thank you again for, for joining us. What's up, Craig? I just figured out the game. Oh. <laughs> Renaissance fair people tra travel back in time to actual medieval times <laughs> and use nothing but yes and no but dice. I like that. I would play that. I would definitely play that. Um, cool. you, you can find me on Twitter at Adraska. You can find my games at winnabegames.com or on DriveThruRPG or on Itch under the same name. And cool. uh, I'm uh, at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. Um, my website is nerdburgergames.com. Games are up at DriveThruRPG. I've got a Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdburgercraig. And right now, as we speak, as we talk, um, when we're recording this uh, four days before we post it, Beth is working on sketches for Cyber, uh, Caper Cyber. We're going, the people who are subscribed to that Patreon, who are patronizing that, um, are going to get to see the very beginnings of super powered criminals fighting the megacorps in an alternate 2020s. Thank you for our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, which is licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you to Steph Sachs and thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye.